Chapter 11 of The Octave of Claudius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. The Octave of Claudius by Barry Payne. Chapter 11 Claudius slept ill and rose early. From his brief sleep, he had been awakened by a horrible dream. He dreamed that he saw the doctor's face bending over him. The eyes were wolfish and eager, the lips drawn back a little, the whole expression diabolical. He tried to speak, but could not. As the face came nearer, and the horror of it grew on him, he tried to raise his arms and thrust it away. But he was unable to move. Then he awoke. It had merely been ordinary and typical form of nightmare. Yet long after he was awake, something of his horror from his sleep haunted him. For the first time, a suspicion of the doctor and a dread of the future entered his mind. He banished them at once as reasonless. What the doctor required, he told himself, was an assistant, absolutely devoted. There might be experiments which would require constant watching night and day, secrets that could be trusted only to one who first forfeited his right to use them for himself. A thousand explanations occurred to him. He had been told that he was to regard himself as a slave, body and soul. It had been said seriously, and he must be prepared to accept it literally. Yet it was always possible that there had been in the doctor's use of the phrase much of that whimsical exaggeration which was habitual with him. It seemed even probable, and the suspicions vanished. Before the octave was over, they were to return again. After breakfast, Claudius chose the inexpensive pleasure of an aimless walk through the London streets. He had much to think about. His point of view had changed. The doctor had been right in saying that a year of freedom was too long. If it was to be one's last year, much might happen in that time to bind one to earth and make the farewell bitter. But eight days, one day, even one hour might also be too long. It was little more than an hour that had made the change in Claudius, placed him in the position of one who, with the strongest possible motor for living, sees the end of life very, very near. He loved Angela, though he had seen her but once. Cantonou, wrote the awful Gautier. Notre avis est que si l'on n'aime pas une personne la première fois qu'on la voit, il n'y a aucune raison pour l'aimer la seconde, et encore moins la troisième. If Claudius had met Angela but one hour before the doctors spoke of their strange contract, that contract would never have been made. If life meant Angela, then it would be worthwhile to undergo poverty, sordid struggles, many humiliations, in order to live. Life would be then beyond price. Claudius saw now that among the many mingled causes which had resulted in the contract under which he was bound, there was one which he had not suspected at the time. Yet in this tragic position, he had no feeling of tragedy 
and no unhappiness. He loved, and it was enough. True, it seemed that the ordinary end of love was not for him, but then no lover at first thinks of marriage or possession. Lady Verrider's word of warning was vaguely in his mind, the dim memory of one who was wise from her point of view. He could not bring himself to think that Angela would love him like that. The nauseous vanity of such a supposition was insufferable. He hoped that she would be kind to him and let him see her often. On his part, he knew that he was not free to, he hated the banal words, to make love to her. Dr. Gabriel Lamb seemed a shadow, and all the previous incidents of Claudius' life seemed obscure and unsubstantial when he thought of Angela. She was the light, in the joy of thinking that, for those few days he would often be with her, he could forget that when those days were past, he was to leave her forever. On one point, he forced himself, however, to be clear, doing this much justice to Lady Verrider. He would take advantage of the strange guest that Angela had made at dinner the night before to tell her everything. He did not believe that in this point it mattered one straw whether he deceived her or not, but all the same he would not deceive her. She should know exactly how he stood. Until he met her he had decided not to tell anyone the story of his contract with the doctor. But if anyone could possibly think that he ought to tell Angela, then he would tell her. He would leave it for the night to settle how much and how little he should tell her then. But certainly she should know all as soon as might be managed. In the afternoon he went to Gilbridge and took three rooms at the hotel there. He returned and dined in town. Halfway through dinner it occurred to him that he would have preferred another wine, but he did not commit the extravagance of ordering it. Of course he might have taken the entire hotel at Gilbridge, and ordered the entire wine list in London. But perhaps one of the best proofs that it was not for the thousand pounds a day that he had sold himself was that he constantly forgot that he had a thousand pounds a day. The doctor had strangely insisted on his side of the contract that little or no interest for Claudius. Mrs. Witcherly had not a thousand pounds a day, but she had no doubt that her husband had been making money lately. Within the last fortnight, he had. In his mild and unpretentious way, he had been practically gambling, and gambling for far more than he could have afforded to lose. It is a pity to have to record it, because its effect may be deplorable on those, if any, who hear about it. But Mr. Witcherly had won. Having won, he had decided not to gamble any more, but to stick to his legitimate business. He kept to that decision. Once only in his life did he sell shares which he did not possess in a mine which practically did not exist. Once only did he buy shares for which he would have been unable to pay from people who had not got them to sell. These two speculations, although they may not look promising when stated boldly, 
put money into Mr. Witcherly's pocket and left him quite satisfied that dabbling in mines was a dangerous business, and he must never touch it again. He did not tell his wife any of this. He did not want to make her anxious. Besides, in matters masculine and commercial, Jessica did not know anything about anything, and explanations were tedious. But still she noticed things. Mr. Witcherly one day tasted the party champagne. On inquiry, he found that he had six dozen of it. He sent that six dozen off to a hospital, remarking dryly that it ought to be drunk in some place where the doctors were handy. Also, he thought that, after all, he might as well have some wine that he could drink himself, and he ordered that wine. Then again, he suddenly discovered that the house needed to be redecorated. Jessica and Angela were to go to Gilbridge while it was being done, and Jessica might have those Oxford Street people she was always thinking about to do it. No, he wouldn't go to Gilbridge himself. When a man leaves his business, his business leaves him. Besides, there ought to be somebody in the house to keep an eye on the workmen. Mrs. Witcherly was delighted. Things are looking up in the city, then, she said. We get along somehow, he answered, with a sigh. It was his invariable reply to that question. He would not let Mrs. Witcherly keep her own carriage. Be reasonable, Jessica. In people in our position, that would be ostentatious. Mrs. Bodgers, Jessica began. Bodgers, by the way, had joined Mr. Witcherly in that speculation. Bodgers is a fool, a fair judge of port, but in many ways, sadly wanting in discretion. No, you may have that hired broom sometimes, well, pretty often. You can fetch me from the office at five now and then if you like. The first time that Mrs. Witcherly and Angela fetched him from the office, he inquired of them vaguely, What's the name of the place where you get your clothes? They suggested several places. Ah, said Mr. Witcherly, this is more comfortable than the bus. Mustn't do it every day, though. Then he relapsed into silence. But presently he added, I don't like your clothes, Angela, and I don't like your mother's either. We'll go and get some more. On this occasion he was wildly generous, insisting on Bond Street and the best of everything. On the next afternoon he came back on the bus, though, and not to make a penny fare into tuppence, walked the last quarter of a mile. Mrs. Witcherly had a few people to dinner that night, and the invaluable Jameson assisted. After dinner... Jameson retired to the basement and spoiled a previously immaculate career by getting drunk on about equal parts of kitchen beer and upstairs kirisu. He did not appear again, fortunately, until the guests were gone, and then he attempted to leave the house surreptitiously. That is to say, he took off his coat, folded it neatly over his arm, opened his umbrella, and came up into the hall. Here he paused, possibly to add some further touches to the disguise, and was discovered by Mr. Witcherly. Mr. Witcherly had been inquiring the reason for Jameson's absence, and had been told 
by a euphemistic parlour-maid that Mr. Jameson had come over very strange in this manner. Mr. Wycherley was, in fact, looking for Jameson. Mr. Wiley, said Jameson with dignity, I know your family many years, and I'm man as likes to she everything tidy round bout me, everything quite tidy, and then I'm, I'm as I, I ought to be. He lowered himself into one of the hall chairs. You'll excuse me for speaking, Burr, when things are understood, then they're, they're ash they ought to be, and everything ought to be ash it ought. With which remarks on the comial foe, Jameson immediately fell asleep. He was removed from the house in a four-wheeled cab, and he never returned to it. Mrs. Witcherly, aghast and much upset, said she was deeply and truly thankful that this shocking scene had not taken place when the guest was still there. Mr. Witcherly said, Get a permanent man, Jessica. Good, but not too expensive. Get him tomorrow. It was the crowning extravagance. It was this permanent and perfect person who hovered at the doors of Mrs. Witcherly's salon when Claudius entered. Claudius, generally self-possessed, felt himself almost trembling with excitement tonight. He could not, however, see Angela at first. Mrs. Witcherly, breaking in waves on a black velvet chore, shook his hand and was so glad. She handed him on to a clever girl in the wrong pink, with the smudgy complexion that almost always goes with much soul. She talked vivaciously, and so did Claudius. The buzz of conversation around them made most of their remarks inaudible to each other, but neither minded it much. As Claudius was talking, he caught a glimpse of Angela. She was standing at some distance away in the window, and an undersized young man with yellow hair and a make-up tie was openly and rather nervously adoring her. He was one of the world's understudies, and there were many of them there. However, Lady Verrider had almost promised to come and bring her title. Mrs. Witcherly did not despair of the evening's brilliancy. Angela was in white satin and silver, and the dress had cost a great deal of money. She was feeling quite all right about herself, as far as appearance went, but her eyes were sad and thoughtful. She knew that Claudius was in the room, had glanced once rapidly at him, found him looking intently at her, and not dared to glance again, until she heard his voice, and he was shaking hands with her. "'May I be introduced to nobody and talk to you all the rest of the evening,' said Claudius. "'Thy servant is the daughter of the house,' she said, "'and has duties, which I am sure Mrs. Witcherly performs to perfection. "'Has the daughter of the house also had supper?' "'Angela Rose put her hand under his arm, "'and the two joined the stream flowing supperwards. "'Isn't that a charming dress?' said Angela. I mean the lady right over there in the corner. I should have thought so. You must think so. I've seen one I admired more. Which? What color? If my audacity may be forgiven, white and silver. Oh, yes, it's pretty. I tried to dress like an angel, and I've come out like a wedding cake. I didn't dare to go into supper before, 
for fear someone would cut a slice. I will protect you. Me? No, protect them. Think of their disappointment. It's true, though. Those that go often to dances and things always become gradually exactly like some dish in a ball supper. Their dresses are no longer trimmed. They're garnished. Their expressions alter, too, get creamy like a mayonnaise, luscious like a macedoine, virulent like a boar's head, patient and vacuous like a cold fowl. Every chaperone looks like a cold fowl. I know one of them will get carved by accident one of these days. Their talk at supper time was not much more serious. Angela was happy, bewitching, and in rather mad spirits, apparently. She introduced Claudius maliciously to several people. She had a way of making others fall into her mood. Many dull and heavy people sprang into wit at her end of the table that night, and wondered when they got home, with approving wonder at the things they themselves had said. Afterwards, Claudius took Angela out onto the balcony. Here, striped canvas made a sweet seclusion for two lounge chairs, a tiny table, a shaded lamp, and a potted palm. Well, he said, and now we're out of the crowd. My crowd, please, poor little struggling crowd. I must go back to it soon. Before you go, I have something to tell you. She leaned right back in her chair. A graceful creature, her pretty white hand playing with her ivory fan. Her eyes had grown sad again, almost plaintive, under the long lashes. Her red lips had lost their garb of raillery. Yes, she said, you have. But there is one thing, tell me nothing, if you would rather not. We met by chance. I guessed something by chance. I ought not to have guessed. Shall we leave it? It would be kind of you if you would let me tell you. Yes, then, tell me, I'm interested. I guessed that you had something of importance at stake. And why should I not say it? I have thought a great deal about it since. Have you, he said eagerly. Have you? No doubt it is chiefly important to myself. But it is more important to myself than I thought once. By a promise given, a contract made, after a few days I become body and soul the property of another man, his to kill or to keep alive, his to do just as he likes with, his utterly, until one or other of us dies. There was a moment's silence. Angela's eyes were wide open. You astonish me, she said. It's an airy story I cannot understand. It is literally true. Yes, that of course, but I do not understand how it happened, how it could happen. The story is long. I don't want you to think too badly of me. When I gave my promise, I thought, I thought I was right. I'm sure enough now, God knows that I was wrong. It is a long story, but if you have the patience to hear it, I will tell it you. Angela rose from her chair and clasped her hands. She was thinking, I cannot hear it now, she said, because we must go back. I'm not quite sure whether I want you to tell me it or not. That has nothing to do with patience or interest, of course. I am interested. It is also strangely romantic. 
my possible reason for not hearing it would be be different did you not say that you expected to be at gilbridge tomorrow your mother has promised to bring you to dine with me at my hotel that night i'm hoping to see you very often i wonder why you spend your last days there no don't tell me not now perhaps one day at gilbridge i shall ask you for the whole story will you tell it me then yes whenever you wish it you have given me the impression that you are a lonely man and sometimes that you are unhappy i ought to be unhappy i do not think i am strangely enough i want she faltered quickly and suddenly to give you my sympathy she stretched out both hands and he held them for a second her face had grown pale she looked to him unspeakably beautiful he checked an impulse and they passed back into the crowded room together a formal farewell followed on his way home he felt glad that he had not made love to angela wycherley better men have had similar illusions after all the guests had gone mrs wycherley had a talk with angela we met him last night said mrs wycherley with fat gaiety and again tonight and we're to dine with him tomorrow and he means to see us often at gilbridge he tells me i'm sure i don't know what it means perhaps you could tell me my dear angela sat down beside her mamma dear she said i'm going to be serious what is it at last tonight mr sandell told me something of his private affairs he will not and cannot marry then why i wish to see a good deal of him during the next few days i am grown up you must trust me completely yes darling angela i do trust you but is this right in him and is it is it dear for your own happiness yes i think so the circumstances are strange you know me mamma dear and you trust me that is sweet of you leave this to me and don't ask me any more questions now i will tell you all one day if mr sandell lets me and i am sure he will my dear this is terribly upsetting i wonder no i won't ask any questions of course he does not make love to you don't say those words mamma dear i do hate them so no no he has not she honestly believed it better women have had similar illusions mrs wycherley allowed herself to be persuaded on every point in her heart she supposed that there was but some temporary obstacle exaggerated by angela's imagination and that although angela might not think it now she would yet be happily married to claudius sandell end of chapter 11 recording by john brandon